following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. So normally I would pick one passage of Scripture and just kind of walk through it. Actually, I don't really have a lot of opportunity, so normally isn't necessarily the case. But today, what we're going to do, we're going to look at a... Um, a theme, and we're just going to kind of trace it through and talk about it this morning, something that's been on my heart and mind for quite some time. Um, And very simply, what stands in the way of us truly knowing and pursuing Jesus? And what's the answer to that? That's what we're going to talk about. Let's go ahead and pray before we jump in and get started. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for the chance that we have to Just talk through this concept that is so important and pivotal in the life of a Christian. And I pray, Father, that you would just guide my words this morning and allow it to be clear and allow your message to shine through. In Jesus' name, amen. So in our men's group, we we go through, we've gone through several different books. Most of the time we finish, not always. Um, but most of the time we finish, and one of the most in- influential books that, that we've gone through is a book called Help My Unbelief by Barnabas Piper. And I don't know how many of you have ever read that book. If you haven't, I would challenge you to read it. So as we walk through some of these concepts, um, that book was very impactful to my thinking in walking through this. So let's talk about the first um, point this morning. What stands in the way of us truly knowing and pursuing Jesus? That's what we're going to talk about first. I'm going to answer the question. I know sometimes we deliberate a little bit, but I'm going to answer it right off the bat. Unbelief. That's the problem. That's what stands in our way. And the reason for that is because our world is broken. It's tainted by sin, and it's hurting. It's fallen. As you look around you, you see deadness everywhere. And even from a child, I know um, growing up, my parents would frequently tell me things, um, things like, Isaac, don't run into the street. That's a bad idea. Don't do it. Did I always listen? No, because I, I didn't most of the time believe what they said was true. And I felt that I knew what was within my best interest and I would be okay. They were looking out for my safety, but I didn't always look at it like that. Probably nobody else here is like that. Um, or when we were walking through the grocery store and there's a big you know, thing of donuts and my parents like, don't grab those donuts, Isaac. And of course I listened, um, but I wasn't, th- I-, I wasn't thinking, you know, these are bad for me. I shouldn't eat donuts every day. I'm still wondering actually if it's really true that they're bad for you. Um, but that's just a couple of many examples that I'm sure you can even think of in your own life where um, you didn't believe what somebody said was true. It's certainly not a th- new theme. In fact, we're going to um, look at several examples. We're going to kind of trace this theme of unbelief um, from the Old Testament to the New, new Testament. So as Stacy would say, in the Black Bibles under the seat, start at page one, and we're actually going to work through 1041, just reading. No, we're not going to do that. We're, we're going to hit six passages this morning, and we're going to talk through it. We're going to read it. Um, and then I'm going to give you a little bit of context, and then we're going to go to the next, all right? Um, So let's start at the very beginning with Adam and Eve, and that's in Genesis 3, verses 4 through 6. Feel free to turn there, or you can just listen along. Genesis 3, verses 4 through 6. 
But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. You see, in this passage, Adam and Eve, they were convinced by the serpent that they, too, were not subservient to God. They felt they could have the knowledge that he had and that he was keeping it to himself. They felt that they could choose what was best for themselves, which so often we do the exact same thing. They felt that God had simply tried to keep deity all to himself. This act of self-confidence and self-rule was disobedience and disbelief in what God had told them. And as a result, everybody knows the result, there's death. Death was the result of that. And it wasn't just for them. That continues on even to this day where we experience death, both physical and spiritual. Had they followed the way that God offered it would have meant life forever. So we see very clearly evidenced here they did not believe what God said to be true. All right, let's turn to the next one. Numbers 20, verse 12. We're going to be talking about Moses. Most of you remember this story. Numbers 20, verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because... You did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So picture with me, we've got Moses leading this group through the wilderness. It was dry, barren, very desertous. It was not an enjoyable place to be at. God had provided for his people though. Throughout the entire time, he had provided for their needs. And yet they continued to complain. They continued to want more and more. And Moses, he was fed up. At this time, he was at the end of his rope, and he was done with these people. And so they were thirsty. They were complaining about them. Um, and in fact, he calls them, he actually calls them rebels. So God told Moses, he said, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. What did Moses do? He hit it. He hit the rock. He was impatient, and he hit the rock. You see, Moses, through this, was drawing attention to himself and his own authority. He took it on himself. I'm going to act in this way. Out of, a, out of unbelief, and because of what happened in this situation, you probably know the rest of the story about what happened. Moses was unable to go into the promised land. He had been wandering for so long, and yet because of this act, which we might see it as very simple, but it wasn't, he wasn't able to go into the land with the people. All right, so next, let's look at the people of Israel. Surely they, of all people, we would be able to see belief. All right, Deuteronomy 9.23 
And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I give you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. So the Israelite people, they were now in the land, the promised land. They were finally there. This land that they had been looking for, that they had been wandering in the wilderness to finally get there. And they were told, God told them, I want you to take possession of the land. I want you to go in there and I want you to route the people out that are there and I want you to take possession of it. Well, did this happen? No, instead they turned to other things. They turned to idols. They turned to really themselves. There was fear. There was a lack of belief in what Jesus said or what God said to them to do. They ran to other things hoping that by pursuing them they would have some sort of satisfaction for them. But they didn't find that satisfaction. All right, so let's move into the New Testament. Luke 22, verse 67. All right, so this is about the Jewish council. Now these religious leaders, hopefully we'll be able to see some, something here with them because I would wager that this group of men probably knew more about the Old Testament than all of us in this room, potentially all of us combined. Luke twenty two sixty seven. If you are the Christ, then tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. So at this point, Jesus is on trial before this Jewish council. He's being questioned about the validity to his claim of being Messiah. This claim that he's made, saying that he's God. But Jesus knows their hearts. He knows that their hearts are wicked, that they are evil, that their hearts are hardened. He knows that they're not going to believe, which we see in 67. Then later, moving into verse 70, we see he finally does tell them and he says, I am. He tells them who he is. And quickly after that, Jesus ends up finding himself in front of Pilate on trial. And then shortly after that, he's crucified. They did not believe the message that Jesus was bringing to them. All right, let's take a look at the disciples in Luke 24, verse 10. Luke 24, 10 and 11. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So this scene takes place around the time that Jesus was resurrected. The women were on their way to the tomb to go and um, put precious oils on Jesus' body. They got there. The stone was rolled away. There was no Jesus. He had been resurrected. It was an exciting, a joyful time. They went off running to go tell the disciples. They got there, said, hey, Here's what's happening. And the disciples did not believe. We would expect after the amount of hours and days and years that they spent with Jesus that they might even say, we've been waiting for this time. It's finally here. It's finally upon us. Their response instead is, you're speaking lies. That was the very first response 
to these women that were so excited about this. And then if we look later in chapter 9 on the road to Emmaus, where there were several disciples that were walking along the road, and Jesus comes and starts walking with them, which the crazy part to me is the fact that he put blinders on their eyes so they didn't recognize him. And he was listening to this conversation and how it was going. I wonder how that would have felt for him to do that. After the hours and days along the way that he had been teaching and doing miracles and all of these things and then walking with his, his disciples and then hearing them say something like, we had hoped that he would redeem us. They were very clearly showing unbelief. In Acts 19, verses 8 through 9, this is going to be our last one that we're going to look at in relation to unbelief. Acts 19, 8 through 9. Luckily, those are the only examples in the Bible of unbelief. Acts 19, 8 through 9. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So this takes place while the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus teaching. And during this time, many did come to know Christ. But there were many more that did not. When Paul went into the synagogue, he was teaching about the kingdom of God. And there was a stubbornness and a lack of belief by most of what they heard that day. So you can see this as just a very simple example and a, and a simple theology of walking through Scripture to be able to see a specific theme as you walk through it. And the specific theme is unbelief. We see this struggle traced all through history and even to today. So at this point, we've answered the first question, what stands in the way of us truly knowing and pursuing Jesus? So then what is a proper response in terms of answering this problem? Well, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, the response is belief. Hopefully that's not a shock. Belief is the response to unbelief. The more challenging part, and what I want to get into some more details about, is what does this belief actually look like? Some of you today may say, well, Isaac, I do believe. I'm not like my neighbors who don't believe there's a God or who only believe that God exists in some form. Or may just acknowledge a certain moral standard as a general guideline and principle for the life. Or... Maybe there's a belief that so many have on, there's something greater out there. I just don't think that I can actually know him. Or, do you fully believe in God's word and in God's way and look at him as the object of our faith? So there's going to be two components under this idea of belief that we're going to walk through. The first being the reality of God and the second being a transformational belief. So the reality of God. Let's look at James 2.19, which is, to me, one of the most interesting passages. James 2.19, and you'll see why as we read it. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm having you 
flip a lot this morning. James 2.19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So the enlightenment period in which we live, we don't really talk a lot about demons or the part that they play or even do we really believe that they exist sometimes. As you think about the developing world in which we live and exist, there are demons and they do exist and they believe, I'm going to put quotes here, they believe good doctrine. So what exactly do they believe? They believe in the reality of God. Although a demon is completely wicked and evil, yet it believes right things about God. So what does that mean for our belief? Do we believe in the same way that a demon would believe? How is our faith different from that? What does that look like? Where is it that we get the power to not just think and acknowledge but rather to do and to be. You might respond with, well, I just, I just need a better understanding. If I just had a better understanding, just a better grasp, then I would believe. Wrong. Do you think that by studying more that you're going to have a better understanding than demons? We just looked a few minutes ago about the disciples. They knew a lot. They were right there with Jesus, the leaders of the day. They knew a lot. But was there belief? Or was there just a, more, a mental assent to certain things? How was their faith? Next, we're going to talk about a transformational belief. What is it that you believe? Is it a mental assent? Is it believing in the reality of God? Well, those are both part of belief. It's a part of it, but not the whole of it. What we know to be true about God's grace and obedience and repentance can just be mental assent, but not necessarily transform you. Is it only an influence in your life to keep you from straying away from the path, or is it something that does truly transform the way that you think and live. A perfect example is kids. Whenever you're back teaching a, a children's class on a Sunday morning, just about every one of them has a mental assent to the teaching of Scripture, both in a doctrinal way and a moral way. But their lives ha have their lives been truly transformed by and changed because of Christ's accomplished work? This transformation, it what, it's what moves you from being Christ-like into a follower of Christ. And that's what's missing so much in the, in the church today is the fact that there are a lot of, a lot of individuals that, that just have a mental assent to these things. If your belief is based only on knowledge collected and even an acknowledgement of something that is true, then that is merely mental assent. But Christianity is based on a transformational belief. So what does this look like? You're talking about it, what does it look like? In Acts 16, 29 to 33, we're going to look at this example. Acts 16, 29 through 33. 
And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved in your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them to the same hour, the same hour of the night, and washed their wounds. And was, he was baptized at once, he and all his family. It is this sort of belief that the Bible calls faith. It is this sort of transformational belief that differentiates, differentiates a Christian from a demon. You know, it's kind of funny how most of the examples that I use are about kids. Not sure why, probably because I have a lot of them. But a perfect example can be vividly seen by your children. And as I was thinking about it, I think one time I was talking to Ed, or maybe he talked about it, maybe even a message, but it, the idea that your, your kids really don't worry about a lot of things. They, they don't worry about their food that they're going to eat. They don't worry about how they're going to get to school, especially. They, they don't worry about the roof over their heads. And when you come home from a busy day and you see your child come running after you with arms open, I, I, like Piper's a perfect example. I come home and whether it's a business trip or just coming home after a regular day, she comes, her arms are wide open. She might fall a couple of times on the way getting to me, but she falls into my arms knowing that I'm going to catch her every time or jumping off the stairs. I don't know if that's the right type of faith, but she, she will do those things. And it's a perfect example in a very childlike way of faith. So if, all that, so if all that we have in our faith is this mental, idea of mental assent or our actions are based on some other standard, they're based on potentially emotions, uh, they're, they're based on happiness or stress. And in our heads, we know that there is a higher standard. That's the hard part. We know a lot of things, but often it's cognitive and it's not transformational. What we know about God is not the same thing as believing in Him. And having this transformational faith, in fact, it can be a deterrent because mental ascent so easily it substitutes for real life change. I know in my own life there are so fr- it's so frequent that, and I've talked to the guys in my gr- group about this. It's it's hard because you know certain things to be true. Every time I know this, I know it. I know the right answers. I know what I should be doing or how I should be feeling in a certain way. But what I actually believe often is very different. So how does this transformation take place? Well, it happens through varying degrees for everyone, but it always happens through God doing a transforming work in our hearts. To live for Him and through Him. So up to this point, we've talked about a couple of things. We talked about the problem. Very simply, our response, the problem is unbelief. And also the fix to the problem is belief. Believing that God is real and that there needs to be a transformation done in our lives. Now let's talk about how do we believe first 
And secondly, what we're supposed to do. In Mark 9, 14 to 23, you can just listen in. Mark 9, 14 to 23. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his mouth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth, and asked his father, How long has this happened to me? And he said, From childhood. And it was often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Now we see in this story part of the mystery that comes from the concept of belief. We see where belief comes from and where it's going. How is it that this father came to Jesus? Was he in despair? Yes, he was. Was he in desperation? Yes, he was. For him to come to Jesus, there had to be a certain amount of faith. However small it was, something had to be there. Something that he had heard about this man named Jesus had to have struck him. We don't know all the reasons why this man came to Jesus, but he did. So the statement, I believe, help my unbelief, is much more than just a statement. Yes, It is a request to someone. This request can only stem from a certain level of belief. Even if it's a small amount, it stems out of that. By the simple fact that the Father prayed and requested this belief, it shows that the request can be granted. A request like this really comes from a starting point of belief. Think about a dead person. Do they go to doctors? No. There has to be a certain amount of life for them to go to a doctor. Otherwise, the doctor can't do anything. So, Isaac, if this is the case, what do I need to do? Give me an action item. This is what I need. Let me run with it. All right, so there are three components to it. And it's the very same question that I often ask ask myself. Whether I'm here or I'm at work, I like to see the process from the beginning to the end. Here's step one, here's step ten. I want to see all of the steps in between. Some of you might be like that as well. Well, I think of belief a little bit like getting fit, all right? There are four different types of people whenever I think about exercise. There's the first type of people, there's the gym rat. They live there. They love exercise. You call them, either they're just finishing up with a workout or they're about to go to a workout. Um, They eat, sleep, breathe, exercise. The second group are those that 
work out consistently. Three or four days a week, they're in the gym, getting it in. They enjoy it. The third group are those that are either at the water fountain or they're doing bicep curls. And if they're not at the water fountain, then they're looking at their biceps in the mirror. They're there. They're making a presence. Then there's the fourth group who scoff at those who go to the gym. And they often have 0.0 stickers on the back of their vehicles. So hopefully this is just a reminder that every person is on a different journey. Their journeys are going to look different. And the struggles, they're also going to look different. While the journey is hard and we're going to make mistakes, remember also that progress can be made. And when thinking about working out, a huge part of that is the type of food that you eat. And since I've gotten married, my diet has changed substantially, thanks to my wife. Um, and I think for us, for we as Christians, having a su- we need a superfood that's going to help us on this journey. And the best superfood is Scripture. I'm speaking to myself here right along with you, is Scripture. Reading our Bibles, not just to read it, but having a different mindset so that we consume it. God's Word is the sustenance for, the soul, for our souls that we need so desperately. Not merely suggestions or lessons or words of instructions, but we need it to live for our growth. The second is the Holy Spirit. Now, up to this point, I really haven't talked a lot about the Holy Spirit, not because of lack of importance. We need to remember that without the Spirit, there can be no belief at all. The Spirit is essential to all saving belief and faith in Christ Jesus. We cannot, like I mentioned before, we cannot originate the belief on our own. We cannot have a relationship without without the Spirit's working. We cannot understand anything about truth, nor can transformation happen without the Spirit. Another of the books that we've been going through was written by A.W. Tozer, who was writing around the same time as C.S. Lewis. And he had a quote on the Spirit, and I just want to read it to you. Holiness as taught in the scriptures, is not based upon knowledge on our part. Rather, it is based upon the resurrected Christ indwelling us and changing us into his likeness. The moment the Spirit has quickened us to life and regeneration, our whole being senses its kinship to God and leaps up in joyous recognition. That is the heavenly birth, without which we cannot see the kingdom of God. The Spirit is the only one who is able to make the connection with the word, and will lead us to true belief. The third thing, and final, as we desire to know and pursue Jesus, I want to remind us of this as well. He is the one that provides the growth. He is the one that, on this journey, he is the one that's going to really make it grow. And whether it's in your own life or in the life of someone that you're ministering to, whether it's a family member, a friend, a close acquaintance, whoever it might be, it's going to be the spirit that's going to work and that's where the growth is going to happen. We're on this journey and it's ongoing. 
We look forward to our future hope when we will see Jesus again. And just like we saw in the, in the video clip, um, is Jesus a way of life for you? Do we desire to know him? Do we desire to pursue him? How's your circle? Are you the dot? Are you the circle? As we, as we close this morning, hopefully, as, as I've spoken, there's been some level of encouragement in your heart from the scriptures about how to properly view our belief and what that looks like, what it should look like, like in the life of the believer. Um, I want to close with a prayer once again from Tozer. I've um, translated it a little bit, but I think it still remains the depth and the richness. So if you would bow your heads with me, I'm going to go ahead and close. Lord, how excellent are your ways. How devious and dark are the ways of man. Show us how to die, that we may rise again to newness of life. Take the veil of our self-life from the top down as we as you did tear the veil of the temple. We would draw near in full assurance of faith. We would dwell with you in daily experience here in this earth so that we may be accustomed to the glory when we enter your heaven to dwell with you there. In Jesus' name.